six championships in eight years. We were the greatest team ever. What time is that? I'm going to ridicule you until you get on the same level with me. You're making a free run of me. It was his team. My mentality was to go out and win at any cost. What's up, everybody, especially the associates. This is Free Association on the Sportsnet Podcast Network. I'm J.D. Bunkus from my apartment. He's Donovan Bennett from his closet. How you doing, buddy? Happy uh, May 2-4, even though it's May 18th. Yeah, shout out to Victoria. Uh, I am uh, I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, you a big Victoria guy? Uh, I'm a big uh, long weekend guy, but the, yeah. when you work in our industry... Long weekends don't count. You have to work anyway. So, um, but I like that everyone else has the day off. They can go and enjoy from a socially safe distance. Yeah, weather's starting to turn. It's getting a little nice outside. Be able to go for a little walk. I think we're gonna get some twenty degree days here. Be able to just yeah, step outside a little bit. Maintain your distance. Be safe as possible. Uh, wear a mask. But yeah, it's it, it looks a little bit nicer in our city right now. Um, so the last dance is over. It's done. We've we've just finished episodes nine and ten. I'm still curious as to whether or not anything else will be put together from a uh, from a Netflix standpoint. Whether they'll want to do some kind of a follow up the way that they do sometimes with really popular series. Sometimes when a podcast pops off, it's a similar thing where it gets a huge following and there's a desire for a little bit more content. But it it really does seem like this docu series is finished. I I just curious. How do you feel just in general about the, the series being over from a content standpoint, because it has been something you and I have talked about now for the last, what, five weeks, and the world has been captivated by this thing. It's really been this this oasis in the desert of the sportwing world right now, and it it did kind of feel like when it closed for me that, that we were losing something. Yeah, I can't remember if it was on or off air, but to yourself and to our producer, Michael, think i described this as a life preserver like it's just kind of allowing us to tread water until we get some real sports back so unless you are a hardcore bundesliga fan which uh, i am now um you're still waiting for the live sports that you care about in north america so it was good to give us something to talk about give us something to mean give us something to collectively watch dissect argue and debate about because that's what we do as sports fan so yeah i'm i'm i feel almost sad for the producers and editors that they didn't actually get the real run of show that they were going to get they were going to have premieres they were going to be able to watch uh get together and watch the finale they would have been able to you know do junkets and have media from across the globe come and touch and feel and talk to everyone associated with it now they just did a bunch of zoom calls uh but i'm i'm so happy that it was able to be fast-tracked because i think as a sporting community we needed it badly yeah and and i would say that it sucks for some of those things that you mentioned those those are difficult you're right having a watch party being able to celebrate with your colleagues after an achievement like this all of those things matter but in a way I would say the spin for them is that this documentary will have taken on a bigger life of its own than it ever could have in any other way. Had it come out, I think it was supposed to be Christmas this year, right? Or around Christmas this year. That was the original launch date. 
And I was supposed to air on off days of the NBA Finals. Okay, so really, off days in the NBA Finals. That's yeah. That's see. See, to me, it's like you would have been competing against something that we would have really cared about, and it would have been really interesting if, say, LeBron would have been in the finals, and you'd be going back and forth between watching LeBron James now and watching Michael Jordan then. I think that would have presented a, a really interesting dynamic. But overall, this this like you said, it's a life preserver. It became so much bigger because. It meant something more to sports fans. I think that that the TV number certainly would probably not have been matched had we not been in the midst of a pandemic, that this thing did have this great, great, great reach. And that if overall, when we're looking back on this thing and we're remembering what happened, especially as sports fans, right, that maybe the general public won't be the same way. Although I have heard from so many more basketball fans, I'm sure you've experienced the same thing where people are just texting you who have opinions on this thing because they just want to reach out to somebody they know who knows basketball. Have you had anything like that? Like a friend who, or a family member, someone who was not a traditional in your phone, you text about basketball person with that, that just reached out to you and and wanted to basically give you some takes, give you some thoughts. Not that wasn't a basketball fan. Oh, I had lots. I do think it's been the subject of various group chats. Um, but I mean, if you're not a basketball fan, you're not a friend of mine. So I think it's like a self-defeating question. <laughs> oh man, shots fired to anybody listening to this podcast. Although, why would you be listening to this podcast? I guess if you're not a basketball fan, that one actually that's the perfect way to to shoot that shot because yeah, you're, you're you're you very much have a lot of safety. I had people reach out to me that are just different friends who I wouldn't say maybe they don't dislike basketball, but just that not their hardcore fans. And they really seemed invested in this and they really seemed captivated by Michael Jordan. They seemed captivated by his mentality that it really was this piece of content that extended past basketball. And I'm not sure it would have resonated the same way without it. So a uh, congratulations to everyone that was involved in this project because yeah, it was a smash hit. I think it went over almost unanimously as a, a great success and people are sad to see it go. And that, I think that's a real mark of, of something that, that, again, resonated with people. And so I want to get into some of our overall takeaways from this series. I want to get into uh, just, yeah, our, our takeaways, uh, whether or not this was something we expected, um, the footage, all, all that different stuff. But I do want to start quickly with episodes 9 and 10. And I'll just ask you this, because we were talking about, you said it sparked debates. It sparked debates amongst people. And, and that is something that... I think we've really missed as sports fans. Sometimes it's been over-exaggerated or overstated like MJ versus LeBron. We've been doing this for, God, five years. How long has uh, the Skip Bayless show been around for? I feel like that's when this just started nonstop every single weekend, every single summer we're doing MJ versus LeBron. But I really felt for Reggie Miller and Carl Malone in this series, just watching these last two episodes, watching these two guys who were both very close to the top of their craft, and I, I think that among all players in NBA history, at least in my lifetime, I don't want to say history, but in, in my lifetime as a sports fan, they're two of the hardest players to rate ever. Do you, agree, do you think that those two guys are overrated, properly rated, or underrated in terms of the way that we look at them now? I think Reggie Miller is underrated. I think Carmelo is overrated, but I also think... Really? That, I, think that the, I, I have it the other way. I think the doctor is Reggie Miller justice, to be quite honest. Is oh, absolutely. Like one of the only people who's willing to go, you know, toe-to-toe with MJ. I think Carmelone gets off scot-free in the dock because the, the best line of trash talk ever spoken 
the mailman doesn't deliver on Sundays. When you said it, did you know you had gotten to him right away? Not till after he bricked them. <laughs> <laughs> By Scotty Pippen, who doesn't talk trash unless it is to or about Jerry Krause, and forcing Carmelo to brick an important free throw. To me, that, that would be like an episode in itself, that back and forth and how it came up and, you know, Jordan being the one known in the duo for talking trash, did he give that line to Scotty? What was what was the the story there? Did Scotty say that to Carl like at a dream team practice and was saying it again? It, that that whole scenario didn't really play out because there's so much good stuff to get to by the time you got to nine and ten when the chronologically told story was back in real time and you didn't have to kind of go back in the history to learn about the team. So I think they I think Malone got off easy, but I mean, I, I think it's not hard to wait those guys because their fate was the same as Charles Barkley or Patrick Ewing or Dikembe Mutombo or Gary Payton or Sean Kemp or John Stockton or Carl Malone. I'm talking about a bunch of Hall of Famers who played in the 90s who didn't win a ring because they played at the same time as Jordan. So unless you grabbed one in between Hakeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler, or after David Robinson and you know Tim Duncan, you weren't getting one if you were his peer at that time. And I think Reggie Miller and Carl Malone, and you know for this conversation, John Stockton are just amongst every other Dream Team teammate that Michael Jordan had, other than Larry Bird, Magic, and Isaiah, who got one before Michael got his first, or Clyde, who and and David Robinson, who who got them later. So. I actually really feel for Carl Malone because of the things that you just said there, which is that Malone is perceived as this massive choker, that that is his legacy, is that, oh, Carl Malone, he's just the guy who could never get it done, and that Reggie Miller is even viewed on the same playing field as him is based out of nothing but mythology. There's nothing to corroborate this. There's nothing to back this up. And yet the basis for this is that Reggie had a big moment against the Knicks, and that is a massive, massive franchise. And it was a massive time in terms of the most successful next team since they won their championships. And he had that shot in game three against Michael Jordan. Here's the actual facts that they don't lay out for you. Reggie Miller in the series against the Bulls, he had one really good game. And that was game three in 98. He scored 28 points. Here are the rest of his games. 16, 19, 15, 14, eight points in game six where his team won, where he shot two of 13 in that game and shot one of seven from three. The following game, he had 22 points in a game seven, and it's basically a mediocre game. This is not a guy who was a playmaker. This is not a guy who's a rebounder. This is not a guy who could create offense really for himself. He was a guy who was an innovator in terms of coming off of screens and being able to hit shots and spread the floor. He was an incredible player. I don't want to diminish Reggie Miller in terms of anything, but the fact that he's been in the media, the that he's had this moment against the Knicks that's basically lived forever through 30 for 30s. It has created this mythos about him that he was some kind of player that should be mentioned on the same plateau as Carl Malone. Like you look at Reggie Miller's career stats. He's a guy who over the course of his career averaged 18, three and three. Those are very nice numbers. He's one of the best three point shooters of all time. He finished his career with the most threes of all time. And I, I still think in this day and age, if you drop him in or you're asking for certain players that he very much resembles a less a worse defensive Clay Thompson of some sorts, a a, a better version of a, a Rip Hamilton in his prime. A guy like that who would have just been dropped into the league and would have been awesome. But you compare him to Carl Malone, who again, viciously gets called a choker. 
This is Carl Malone in two elimination games against that 98 Bulls team. 39 points, 9 rebounds, 5 assists. 31 points, <laughs> 7 assists, 11 rebounds. Carl Malone basically scored half of the Jazz's points in game 5 in Chicago in an elimination game. And he's viewed as a choker because Michael Jordan had one of the best sequences of all time where he steals a basketball and he missed a free throw as a guy that carried an entire team's offense. You just you look at those Jazz teams compared to those Pacers teams and the Pacers are loaded. They have the Davis brothers. They have Rick Smith, who, again, is has become this like really, really underrated player. People forget about how dominant that guy was in his time. Mark Jackson, Jalen Rose and Reggie Miller. He could afford to have these 17 point games. The Utah Jazz were a two man team featuring Jeff Hornacek and then a bunch of nobodies. And it was on Carl Malone to basically carry those teams over and over and over again. He's a guy with signature moves, a signature name, MVPs. You go through his playoff history. He's incredible. Like this dude came off of a series where he swept the Lakers. He swept the Lakers in Shaq that we look at as one of the greatest teams of all times. These are his numbers in that series. 29, 10 and 4, 33, 7 and 3, 26, 6 and, or 10 and 6, and then 32, 14 and 5. That's him against Shaquille O'Neal. That's him against Kobe Bryant. Like that's, that's incredible. Those are unbelievable numbers. And yet he gets just kind of like tossed away in the analogs of history. And it's very strange to me. I think a lot of it has to do with, he was not a popular figure at the end of his career. He had a falling out with Kobe Bryant. He ended up having a second family in a very, very bizarre story, uh, a daughter that ends up making it to the WNBA. But overall, it's just that Carl Malone is a recluse. He's not anywhere. He doesn't have a famous moment that gets pushed the same way as Reggie Miller's. And I, I just kind of felt for the guy watching this series like, damn, Carl Malone was so dominant and we never talk about him. And he does get lumped in with the Ewings and the Reggies of the world where it's like, no, man, he was just a way better player than those guys. He should be on a different level than those guys. And he made two finals. Those guys each just made one. It's just very, very odd that we put him like this. Well, thank you for Carl Malone's eulogy. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so but the what, what did was... I say wrong there? Well, I mean, you 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 created a straw man and then you blew it down for three minutes. You asked who, how I thought they were rated, and yeah. I think I didn't say Reggie Miller is better than Carl Malone. I think Reggie Miller is underrated. I think Carl Malone is overrated. Carl Malone is clearly a great player. He won an MVP, but I mean, I'm not the one in the documentary who said that Pacers team gave the Bulls more of a scare than the Jazz. They did, but that's because the, they were the better Bulls team. And Jordan did, and and I mean, yes, the the. The Pacers had a, a nice roster and they had some depth, but Carl Malone also played with not only another Hall of Famer, another guy on the dream team, the original dream team, mm -hmm. another guy in his prime in the Hall of Fame in John Stockton. Reggie Miller played with nice players. Jalen Rose is a nice player. Mark Jackson accumulated a lot of assists. He's a nice player. Chris Mullen was on the team on the downside of, of his career. I was going to say. The, the, the Davis brothers were good, but they were the Davis brothers. Oh, they were badass. But they weren't they weren't nearly the the level of John Stockton. Carl Malone is, a, is a, a very good player, but I think Reggie Miller is underrated in the sense that one, uh, he had to run through the Knicks and the Bulls year after year in the in the playoffs, and eventually a couple of years later, a Heat team that ends up being really good. But also, when you look at their actual impact on the game, you mentioned Rip Hamilton. Rip Hamilton is a facsimile in many ways of Reggie Miller. Steph Curry's favorite player growing up, other than his father, was Reggie Miller. The way R Reggie Miller influenced a guy like Ray Allen, his impact on the game is, is far succeeds 
his actual career. And in fact, if we took Reggie Miller and dropped him in this era, he would be so much better of a player if he had license to, to shoot from three as much as players do now. Cromwell's great, but Tim Duncan's a better power forward in, in my estimation, even though I, I think he's cheated the game and called himself a power forward when he was really a center for huge parts of his career. Charles Barkley played at the same time. And I would argue that Charles Barkley was a better power forward. Carmelo was really, really good at scoring points on the pick and roll, better than anyone else. But like the the facts, the facsimile of Carmelo is like Amari Stoudemire in his prime. No, see that's see that's blasphemy. That's what I mean. This is why he's so underrated. He's one of the most underrated guys of all time. If you want to say Barkley's better, that's fine. Like I'm not going to push back on it. I think that it's very close you could probably give the edge to Barkley. If we're going to put Tim Duncan as a power forward, then clearly he's better. I think that Kevin Garnett was a better player than Carmelo. But we're working off of a very short list of people that are in the same conversation as, as the mailman was throughout his career. And you talk about like Reggie Miller having to go through the Knicks and then running into the Bulls. Yeah, Carmelo was running into those 90 Sonics teams. He was running into those Lakers teams that I just mentioned. He swept Shaq. Like he was running into those Spurs teams. Like that. that's... The Western Conference throughout the late 90s and mid 90s was much, 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 much stronger than the Eastern Conference. Like they were no, non-comparable no. conferences. Like, no, no. what do you mean? The West was absolutely way more powerful. The Bulls were the best team. But in terms of like conference depth, the West was was much, much better. Go look through. Look, go look at their records. Go look at the team records from those years, year over year over year. It's, it's not close. It's the Western Conference by a, a quarter mile. It's just I'm just saying that I think Carl Malone even being lumped into these conversations of, okay, well, it's him and these guys. It's like, no, it was Carl Malone and Charles Barkley, and they were at the very top when it comes to Jordan's rivals. And then everybody else was very, very secondary to those guys. And that while Reggie Miller was a really good player, and I, I think that you're right, maybe his influence is a little understated at times. Carl Malone also has influence in terms of the way that he changed off-season workouts. Carl Malone's one of the first guys that like was working out constantly in the NBA. And you hear this like... This isn't just a me thing. This is a documented thing that Carl Malone was one of the innovators when it came to treating the NBA as a as a 20 or as a 365 day affair in terms of his body. I just I, I just felt bad for the for that guy watching this series. I felt bad for him watching him go onto the bus and have to you know do this thing where he walks down the entire Bulls championship bus and say goodbye because I really do think that if we're talking about the most underrated player of all time, I think it's Carl Malone. I really do. I, I strongly believe that it's Carl Malone. So we've got some new things for you this NBA season. And no, it's not just Terrence Davis playing so well. We have a newsletter that will break that down and so much more. Our weekly newsletter from NBA editor Stephen Leung. It gives you original content, opinion, analysis. You can't find it anywhere else, and it is delivered directly to you right in your inbox, sportsnet.ca slash newsletters. Just subscribe, and we got you. Um, okay, how about this? The flu game is arguably the most famous individual performance of all time, right? Would you say that? Father's Day no. after after Brett Favre's father passed away, his Monday night football performance. There's Tiger Woods on one knee. Like what what would you say ranks above those things? Like they're all in kind of the same conversation together, no? Well, I mean, Wilt scored 100 in a game. Yep. 
Kobe went for 80 plus against the Raptors. Like I, I think the mythology of the flu game certainly and the photo of Jordan walking to the bench and Pippen, you know, holding him up. But I, I don't necessarily know if many people could tell you a lot about the game other than the fact that Jordan had the flu and he played well. Um, but but I think it's it's one of the better games of his career because of what it meant in the moment. Certainly, yeah. But um, yeah. But anyways, get the, I'm sure that's not that was the preface to a further question. So go on. I just think that most people know what the flu game is, and they know that Jordan had. I think that you laid it out actually really well. That that's what people remember. He had this incredible game in the playoffs when he had the flu, and he overcame the Jazz and he beat them in that game. And he and he finished with uh, just a, a really, really strong performance, a 39-point game with, yeah, what ends up being food poisoning. We get this, this story about five guys showing up with a pizza that I had never heard before, uh, that it was a pizza food poisoning situation. It had always been rumored that it was Jordan being hungover. It was always rumored that, I don't know, somebody had sabotaged him in some way, but this is it. Turns out to be a pizza story with, with five guys. I think that Jordan's game six that closes this series should be far and away his most famous game. And of course, it's his most famous shot. But when they're laying it all out there, that Scottie Pippen is playing without a back, that the, the Jazz are losing it in front of their home crowd trying to get a game six, that he's looking around him for help. And it's a team of yeah, mostly falling apart Chicago Bulls players like Dennis Rodman in this series. It's hilarious that they, you know, he's viewed as this like huge storyline in the series. Of course, he should be. It's very odd. The wrestling stuff, we can get to it. But here's Dennis Rodman's points totals uh, game by game against Utah in that series. Zero, three, two, six, two, seven. Uh, not exactly a guy that that he could lean on for for some real offensive support. That Jordan's game, that game six, putting the team on his back as the final game of his Chicago Bulls career and what he actually accomplished. And the fact that Scottie Pippen was hurt to the degree that he was hurt to me is far more impressive than game five where Jordan had the flu. Yeah. I mean, I think it's especially when you look late in the, in the game, a bunch of Jordan's shots were short uh, yep. because he was so tired, which is why he, you know, over exaggerates and holds the follow through basically puts the ball in the net um, to make sure that he had enough leg and enough lift on the shot. It kind of wrapped the, both of them together because they they kind of, you, when you think of one, you think of the other. But that the photo itself yeah. is maybe the best sports photo ever. Um, I don't know, like Jackie Robinson stealing home, maybe. Bobby um, Orr. Bobby Orr. Um, Usain Bolt, like, eight body lengths in front of everybody else while he's beating his chest with an untied shoe, uh, setting a world record. Um, but, yeah, it, it, the photo is crazy. And as much as Jordan said, you know, he wanted to have the right to come back and win a seventh, and naturally as a competitor, that's what you want. The, yeah. the beauty of ending that way I, I'm, I'm still upset that he came back as a wizard because that would have been the most gangster way to, to retire and end your career. Like everyone says, oh, end on top. End on. No, no, that's on top. No disrespect to John Elway, like scrambling for a couple yards and getting helicoptered and having his owner say, we did it for John. Like, yeah, you okay, did he, disrespect him with that. But yes, go on. He, he went out on top, but he wasn't a top quarterback. 
he, he played really well in meaningful moments, but he was not the best player on his team. The best player on his team was a running back with braces and that had mind grades. Shout out to Terrell Davis. The, Michael Jordan was the best player in the world, and he, and he would have gone out literally on top. Um, and so, yeah, I, I remember that photo and thinking, man, you can't come back after this. You have to, even if you wanted to come come back. You have to exit stage right and just leave it. Do you wish he came back with the Bulls, though, the next season? Because I do. I, I feel like that's the thing I keep coming away from with this series is I can't believe the Bulls walked away from another season of Michael Jordan when he was still that guy. Like, he might have been exhausted, but this is where you look at it through the prism of, you know, 2020 that we're in right now and say, find a way to load manage this guy, get him to the playoffs, and well, you, let you Michael Jordan. Had, you wouldn't have had to do that because the next year was the strike short season. It was 50 games. Right. So he, everyone would have been load managed. And if you gave him a little head start and you could smell the finish line, like no disrespect to the San Antonio Spurs, but the San Antonio Spurs wouldn't be the San Antonio Spurs because Steve Kerr and, you know, Purdue, although you could have had Purdue if you wanted, they wouldn't have left the Bulls to go to San Antonio. I think as much as they could have run it back and probably won again, they were on fumes and it just wasn't going to happen. Scottie Pippen was out. He's wanted his money. He had been wanting his money. He didn't even want to come back after the fifth championship, never mind the sixth. Phil Jackson was already taking offers from other teams before the season was even over. His relationship with Kraus was uh, untenable at that point. And so unless Reinsdorf said, I'm paying everybody an exorbitant amount one year just to run it back, they, it was never going to be the case, which is why they started the season with the the binder saying the last dance. So, I mean, naturally, if I'm on that team as a competitor, I want to run it back. But I, I don't know. Do, do you want to see a, a dynasty go and go and go until the, the breaks fall off like the Warriors? Or do yes. you just want to have a nice period at the end of the sentence? You and I talk a lot about uh, principles of basketball that extend out from just the, the court, right? Just playing a game. And what happens? It's King's Court. That's how you play pickup. You play until you lose. And to see Michael Jordan go out that way because someone pinched pennies, it's just, it's tough to swallow. Here's the biggest defense of here's is the that. Thing. Here's the thing. Go ahead. So, sorry to cut you off before no, you get rolling. But if, if they run it back and he loses, Michael Jordan's not Michael Jordan. Everyone in the barbershop who says six, six finals MVPs. But he came back going... anyways with Washington. Which, yeah, true. But he didn't. He never made the playoffs again is my point. Right. Everyone says never even made it to a game seven in the finals. Six rings, six finals MVPs, clean. I, LeBron, you dominated the Eastern Conference, but you've lost more finals than you've won. You know, Kobe, you had to tear your franchise down just to get back. And even you lost to the big three Boston Celtics. Jordan, his trump card is six with six finals MVPs, never a game seven. And that and that's the argument that ends all arguments. No one can say anything else. If he if he would have gone back and they would have lost to your supersonics or the Suns or the Rockets, it would have it would have muddied what is a clean and beautiful legacy. See, to me, I just I don't care about that part of the argument when it comes to LeBron versus Michael or all those things. Like, I just, I don't know. I, I, I don't really think that it's weird. I, I think I'm actually more of the big time minority where I just, I don't really particularly care about the, the greatest of all times debates. I just think that they're heavily flawed. 
and that they're but really but difficult to do. But it's not about the do. greatest all time. It's about ending. No, like, I know. When but you're I don't still think, okay. Like, that's what you, I mean. are I you the guy Jordan's who wants your favorite show to come back season after season after season, even though the plot lines are already, you know, basically run out? Or would you like a tight like three seasons? Go on a high. I literally liked you, and now I can move on to something else. For sure, I would rather that. The thing is, the beauty of pro sports is that it isn't scripted. The beauty of it is that we don't need to run out of the writing because it just creates itself. And that I would have loved to have seen what Michael Jordan would have looked like one more time. Hey, run it. Continue to run it back out there. This is the thing. He wasn't But it is done. scripted in the sense that you can't win a championship until infinity. Like but at I don't some think point. That I, of course not. But win. I don't think it would have been a failure if he didn't win a championship the following season. But here's what I know. They still would have had the best player on the planet. That's what Jordan proved in the 98 season is that he was still the best player on the planet. And even when he came back with the Wizards, he was a guy who was still capable of dropping a 40 point game on somebody. He just couldn't carry a team of really pretty awful players in his 40s to NBA championships like that. It had passed him by that the game was no longer his. The game was now in the hands of Kobe Bryant. The game was now in the hands of Shaquille O'Neal. It was in the hands of the Spurs like it, it had to be passed on. The torch was passed on at that point in 99. There wasn't anybody to pass the torch to. There was no team where you said, oh, OK, well, it has to be these guys. Like like I mentioned it, the Lakers still had just gotten swept by the mat or by by the Jazz. The Jazz had just beaten beat twice. That that Pacers team did not come back with the same uh, the same oomph. Like the the Bulls would have still probably been the favorite. I think the biggest problem with it is that it's the Pippen issue. That you're right, giving Pippen this massive massive contract would have been impossible for the Bulls. And the only way that they would have been able to retain him is to give him a max deal. And then what do you do? You run him back and then worry about potentially trading him. It's weird watching this thing again through eyes of 2020 because here's a guy in his 30s who in a finals game couldn't finish it because he's got such an aggressive back injury. And yet at the time, you still would have absolutely broken out the bank to pay Scottie Pippen as though it was just an impossibility that he wasn't going to live up to that contract. And of course, we know how it went with the Rockets. And he ends up playing better with Portland and still having some moments in his career. But really, Scottie was shot. It's just the trump card to everything you just said to me is just you had the opportunity to bring back Michael Jordan and you didn't. You had the opportunity to bring back the best player on the planet and you didn't. And that to me is just I will not I don't think we'll ever see that again. We'll never see that again in professional sports where it comes down to an ownership issue. Like if LeBron James won a championship this year and he said, I think I'm going to retire, but I'm going to need a contract extension. Let's just pretend he's an unrestricted free agent. I'm going to need you to give out all these max deals. Of course, the Lakers would do it. Of course, they would. There's no doubt in my mind that they wouldn't do that. Like what organization wouldn't? But the thing is, the Bulls were willing to do that. That's the difference is that they did want Michael Jordan back. But they no, wanted, but they him, wanted back him back on the terms of Tim nobody Floyd else. as their coach. Yeah. And yeah. they wanted <laughs> to take a bit of a gap year and rebuild around Jordan. And they were happy to do that. LeBron James went to L.A. and they were not a juggernaut right away. We, we, we clearly saw that. But he was willing to bide his time for a season and until they had the reinforcements. Michael Jordan was not willing to do that. He was not willing to work for anyone other than. But Bill he Jackson. shouldn't have had to. He shouldn't have had to. He's Michael Jordan. That's what I mean. He's the player. This is. The player empowerment of this situation. Like, I'm not saying that give a max contract or let somebody else run it back of of a lower stature. I'm talking about the greatest basketball player who ever lived, who's coming off of a championship, who's coming off of one of the most iconic performances of his career, a 45 point affair against the Jazz in their building with literally no help. Michael Jordan had one assist in that game, one assist. Like, he just, that was him. He won that game on his own shoulders in Utah. And to just not say, screw it. Whatever you want, Michael. Like he said in the doc, I would have done a one-year deal. I'd have been doing one-year deals. All but, you needed but, to do was bring the band back. You needed to bring Phil Jackson back. You needed to bring Scottie Pippen back. 
And that was the only way to get it done. But even still, that's the way to get it done then. Bring the band back. But the band didn't want to come back. Like The point is, to bring Phil Jackson back, you would have had to have gotten rid of Jerry Krause and said, Phil, I guess you're the Show what? Get rid and, of Jerry and, Krause. And, and it, well, How Jerry, many championships have the Bulls won under Jerry Krause since they let Michael Jordan go? How many, Phil, how many championships has Phil Jackson won as a general manager? Like we, we've, we've now seen that that wasn't his genius. And in fact, Jerry Krause is a Hall of Fame GM because even though he was ridiculed and they called him crumbs and, you know, he got let his ego get in the way, he did build a, a juggernaut of a basketball team. Sure, he but he never w- built one again. It was Mr. Organization. Mr. Organization only won with Michael Jordan. True. Hey, listen, it's not my money. I would have brought it back. But you can't just say bring it back because Phil and Scotty would have had to want to come back and even dennis rodman dennis rodman played another 35 games no, in he his was basketball done. life yeah, so that so done. so the the thought that we're just going to bring the exact same team back and they would have won i don't know for sure if, if they would have lasted another year i mean imagine dennis rodman post post lockout what 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 type of shape he would have been in to, to go after another championship I I gotta tell you this thing we'll get to our overall takeaways but yeah Rodman was infuriating in this episode and again I brought it up because I look at his game logs from that series and he continues to be this big story and I don't want to diminish his defense because yes that was Dennis Rodman it was defense and rebounding he was not a scorer but even when you just look at these these box scores of Dennis Rodman in those games he was he was washed up he was done and the idea that he would be so selfish as to go wrestle in the middle of a series and I thought Phil Jackson's answer was one of the best ones of the entire series where he says, like, you, this is distracting you from the finals. It's not distracting us from the finals. I, while while a good line, uh, hard to imagine that Dennis Rodman seeing him on WWE with Hulk Hogan with some girls underneath his arm didn't give the Bulls just a little bit of pause as Scottie Pippen's playing on no back and Michael Jordan is playing the, the series on fumes. Uh, that Like, the Rodman stuff, it, what, what do you think? Is that worse like what happens if that's 2020 with Twitter? Does Twitter never, just melt down? It never happens. In 2020. <laughs> it no, never happens. Him running out of the back of the arena with you know ENG camera guys sprinting up a flight of stairs after him never happens. <laughs> uh, I just none of it. None of it happens in 2020, which is why the doc is a nice you know time capsule for us to you know go back to that time and remember when it was such a simpler uh, NBA. Dude, I'm glad you mentioned that scene where it's Rodman running out the back because there's... So you mentioned Usain Bolt, right? How he's... One of the most iconic photos is Usain Bolt just crushing the the world's best 100-meter dash runners. Uh, Dennis Rodman, with a head start, a professional athlete, running ahead of old media people carrying camera equipment, like... Why did those people like this is the ultimate don't jump when you try to jump on a great dunker and your uh, who was it? Brandon Knight that tried to jump on uh, DeAndre Jordan. Like this is to me even worse than that. Like, what are you doing trying to follow Dennis Rodman up the stairs holding camera equipment? You're never going to catch him. Like what? What reality are those people living in? Yeah, I guess just to get the shot of him jumping in his car <laughs> really at the time, it would have been his motorcycle and driving off, I suppose. That's the greatest mismatch of all time. You can tell your your newsroom editor that you got something. Yeah, I tried. I tried. Um, So anyways, I thought these two episodes were great. Uh, My favorite two, my favorite weekends was last weekend, which were episodes seven and eight. I just thought it was the best look at actually Michael Jordan himself. Although this last 
these last two, uh, I found they had the best behind the scene footage out of everything in terms of the entire series. It was a little bit of a complaint of mine, but we had Michael Jordan at practice. Uh, we had him jamming out to someone named Kenny Lattimore. Do you know who that is? Did you know who that was before this? I mean, I was familiar of the football player, Kenny Lattimore, but no, this is a great look for the jazz musician. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so you got Michael jamming out. You have him in the flu game, how he just looks so beat and him getting on the bus and just staring forward. I thought it was a really humanizing shot of him. You have him and Larry Bird trash talking at the after the end of game seven. The uh, you bitch, fuck you. <laughs> I thought that was that's like maybe my favorite moment of the entire series so far. Uh, Phil in the huddle against Utah. Uh, Gus Lett and the, the the shots of him and Michael Jordan and the, the true relationship that they obviously had. Was this the best one from a behind-the-scenes footage for you? Or was there a different episode that that you enjoyed a little bit more? Because I think this one was the where it really came through, that that this camera crew was with them for the entirety of this year. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was the best. It was just the most because, yeah. again, as you're going through, starting in one and two and, and working away to the end, you know, the 97-98 season was always there, but you would be brought back into time to give you the backstory to understand why you care about these characters in 97 and 98 and why it's not just a NBA home entertainment video about that season from behind the scenes. So there wasn't a lot of room for the behind the scenes stuff because you spent at least half, if not more, of every episode in the past going back to Phil Jackson's family upbringing in the 40s, going back to Arkansas with Scottie Pippen. Uh, even in episode nine, going back to Beirut with Malcolm Kerr, Steve Kerr's dad. And so they used big moments in those people's careers to take you back in time. By the end, by episode 10, there's no history anymore. It's just the season. And really, it's just the playoffs and just the finals. So in terms of someone like you, who's a basketball junkie, who just wants the playoffs that's why episode 9 and 10 probably are the sweet spot because you're just getting the 97 and 98 playoffs and you're getting the behind the scenes so i, I just think there was a larger sample of it um is some of the behind the scenes stuff with your boy scotty burrell i thought was funny earlier i mean the, my, my favorite behind the scenes shot is um um john michael i believe his name is the security guard who you know hits Jordan with the uh, with the celebration after he beats him? But um, but yeah, I, I think in terms of the the story arc, you were always going to get more of the behind the scenes stuff in nine and ten, and and that's what we got, which made it such a good watch. Yeah, and yeah, nine and ten in terms of the basketball geek side of me of seeing all those things, I that I did enjoy the the footage the most. Like I said, the Larry Bird stuff, the Carl Malone going on to the bus and showing the sportsmanship with Jordan, the, the, the joking with his teammates, the, like I, I went through everything, but yeah, I just, that's where it really felt like, oh man, I, this is more what I was expecting from this series. I didn't expect as much background as there was going to be. Let, let's just get, uh, let's just get into our, our biggest takeaways from the series. And, and I'll start with that is, were you, do you think ESPN and just the last dance crew in terms of promoting this thing did oversell the footage to a degree. Did you feel as though you really were as behind the scenes in this thing as, as you thought it was going to be? Um, no, I mean, I guess that wasn't necessarily the selling point for me. I mean, I, I, ESPN probably oversold 
every aspect of this because they have nothing else to sell right now. And uh-huh. Sports Center became a preview and review show for the for the doc. But I, I think the other challenge of looking at this through the lens of 2020 is we have hard knocks. We have open gym if you're a Raptors fan. We have Bleacher Report and Uninterrupted 24/7. IG Live and 24-7. We, we have all of this content that takes you behind the scenes. That Even live in games, seeing guys mic'd up is, is not new to us. So that level of access is something that we're accustomed to. It's, it's basically a right for sports fans at this point. But when we're going back to the 90s, that's not the case. So the fact that these cameras were there in the first place was was new, was novel, was seemed to be great access. And so does the sound, does the visual stand the test of time in comparison to what we've been given from HBO Real Sports for years? No. But relative to that level of documentation at the time it is pretty interesting like if, if if someone wanted to do a documentary about the 90s knicks or the the knicks heat rivalry it would be good but it wouldn't have any of the practice footage because no one was filming it um so I, i'm sorry i didn't answer your question because i rarely ever do no you did though i think it's, this, that's a really it's, great point it's it's relative to that level of access at the time and again, remember, that access at the time was like, come fly with me videos, right? Like, that's the way you saw Jordan, which for some people, when they saw him MFing his teammates, that's like a stark contrast to the person that they believe they knew, which is why Michael was so reticent to let this footage see the day of light. Um, but I think if we're framing it in the, in the 90s, yeah, this, that was great access. Like, no, I, like that that that's why we never saw or heard of the footage of Rodman running away from the media because, because only one person had the vantage point that was worth airing and now now we've seen it i think that's a really 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 good point and it's one that i hadn't thought of that yeah you have to you really do have to put yourself into the idea of the Bulls giving this access, knowing that it was the last dance and that not being the norm of just having embedded series, that this really was something that was much closer to pioneering and that someone like Michael Jordan, when we keep going back and, and like, again, I'm, I'm thinking about this on the fly right now because, yeah, you you really have changed my opinion about some things. But you think about I have thought so much on why did Michael want this footage delayed for so long? What was it about this? that he really didn't want the public to see. How did he feel as though this was really going to, to shape his image in a negative way? Because we had been led to believe that, oh, hey, man, these Scott Burrell things, they just really seem like bullying. And Michael Jordan punched a teammate in the face. And like, ooh. And I've, I've said it before that I don't think that they're that bad. I think that there's potentially some stuff that is cut out and edited by Michael that because he did have final say, that there's probably a few things that he said that are a little gauche and that, the ESPN team decided, hey, you know what? Let's maybe leave this one out of here. Or that there was some beratings in the locker room that were left out of there. Because yeah, I've t- like when I talked to Will Purdue, that was something that he discussed was that every after every game, he would pick somebody out and just, just not stop. He would just go at them and go at them and go at them. And I was a little disappointed that we didn't get to see some of those things. And it's not because I want to see MJ torn down. 
It's just that I want to see this competitor in as raw of an atmosphere as I can possibly get. I want that access because of the sports fan that I am in 2020, which has all of those things that you mentioned. I have the hard knocks. I've been accustomed to 24 sevens. In fact, if you recall, 24 seven is a boxing series, but they stretch it into a, a hockey series for the NHL. And it ended up shutting down because the access wasn't good enough that the Toronto Maple Leafs gave them that they edited too much. And if you look at the footage from that, it's like, we're talking about going into the players' homes. We're talking about being in the arena. We're talking about them mic'd up during games. It's pretty good access. It's pretty comparable with this stuff right here. And HBO looked at that and said, you know what? This isn't good enough for us, Maple Leafs. You're doing too much editing and, and we don't want it. But a guy like Michael Jordan, maybe some of the thought process was not so much, hey, I don't want this out here because of the way I'll look, because there's something that's that bad in here or there's something that that's that secretive but just because of the general mentality of when he played, that you don't leak the videos of a locker room, that it is uncomfortable to show state secrets, that it doesn't have that same, he didn't have that same level of openness. They closed the documentary talking about how, you know, Michael built this entire brand off of just great play and this bigger than this larger than life persona that translated into world where it was just your television sets and radios, that there was no Twitter, there was no social media. His branding opportunities were not ones that were done in, in non-traditional ways like we see now, that there was no influencer stuff when it comes to uh, oversaturating yourself. But that what we were looking at here is maybe just a guy who doesn't come from a same background as us when it comes to wanting to release personal stuff like this or having a season. And that maybe what took so long is just that he's more of the, you know, ball four Jim Bowden being thinking guys get blackballed from sports for releasing secrets than the openness of bringing a camera crew into your locker room for a finals run like the Open Gym 2019 Toronto Raptors. Yeah, I mean, if we use the finals now as an example, uh, the, the last Cavs-Warriors finals, uh, HBO and, and Bill Simmons as the executive producer put out mini films after every game basically that ran on HBO of behind the scenes footage along with the NBA that was happening in real time. If we're going to use hard knocks as an example for NFL training camp. Those come out the next week. Yeah. This is footage that we had to wait 20 years for even something like Draymond Green losing it in the locker room and going after Steve Kerr. We found out about that. Not later. Lisa Salters reported about it right after it happened during the game, we knew about it before Draymond Green had taken the floor again. So just the the speed with which we expect to find out behind the scenes information is much, much faster. And the amount that we do see is, is much faster. So I think it's tough to compare the two. Horace Grant tells Sam Smith, allegedly, a bunch of information in a book um, that you know supposedly is going to tear down the team. If that happened today, that information would have been in like an athletic article the same day. Like there would have never been a book. Sportsnet article, I would say, is <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we're writing that many behind the scenes articles about the Bulls, but yes, you, you get the point. Um, I I think that's dead right, and I think that maybe that changed my perception with this thing a little bit in terms of what I expected, because you're right. We do have this, we live in a culture of immediacy now. And if you're told you're going to wait 20 years from something, it's essentially going to be, you know, we're releasing the 
the the reports from the JFK assassination. Like it's going to be big, big, big secrets. And that's just what I expected more of. I thought it was going to be. Uh, and again, this is my own fault. I thought this was going to be more the, of a series about the as it was labeled the last dance, that this is going to be a ride through the the 98 season from start to finish and that it was going to be really, really inclusive and invasive in terms of the footage that we were going to see, that most of it was going to be footage and then reactions off of it. And it was a lot more setup of going through the entirety of Jordan's Bulls and and basically Jordan himself. And that wasn't really something that I expected. What, was it everything that you expected from the series? Like what what about it was most surprising to you, if anything? Um, the fact that Jordan got emotional at all was surprising because I just had never seen him at all like that, that side of him. I, it is what I expected. I mean, I, I think um, the, the term entertainment, Terry, rather than documentary, um, if I'm going to make up a word, it's fitting. Like, I loved, loved, loved uh, The Defiant Ones, which is a, a doc made by Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine about, you know, how they changed the music industry and eventually changed the, the headphone industry with Beats. And it was amazingly produced, well done, but it was also done by them. And it was yep. their perspective on themselves. And so, I mean, there were other parties involved, Netflix, uh, Jason Heron and his team, uh, ESPN, um, Mandalay. I mean, the Jumpman was also involved. And so I kind of look at it through the lens of the Defiant Ones. Did it entertain me? Did it give me some nostalgia on a previous time that I would love to revisit? Yes. Do I expect it to be OJ made in America that's going to be this really, really, really critical look at societal issues and you know how they manifest themselves through an individual person? No, uh, not so much. It's, it's more of a, a Bill Simmons article about a topic than a Malcolm Gladwell article about a topic, if that makes sense. I think that's a really good way of putting it, actually, that this is Jordan through Jordan's eyes with the help of ESPN. And I I guess I did think it was going to be a little bit more like the OJ Made in America series. I did think that it was going to resonate a little closer to some stuff that we've seen from 3030 in the past rather than the Defiant Ones, as you said, which I, I totally agree. That's the perfect parallel for this thing. Like there's that's dead right that that and we're talking about it entertain see i don't know how you said it entertain you series is that the way that you're coining this right now can i get this again for branding purposes uh well it's no not a not a documentary it's a entertainumentary entertainumentary i think that's exactly the right way of putting this because this was super entertaining it obviously had value because i want to hear what jordan thought about these things i want those sit down interviews it's just that yeah it's really tough to call it a documentary series when the guy does have final cut and when it was portrayed the way that that it was portrayed at times and that you do have to wonder when uh, a guy like uh, like Clay Thompson's uncle, Andy Thompson, who who pitched this idea is telling you that they've got hours and hours and hours and, and, and yards and yards and yards of footage that you end up with what you, you end up with. You just you have to at least raise an eyebrow and say, OK, well, what what was it that that got cut? Why were some of these decisions made? And what would it have been like if Jordan didn't have power over this thing in terms of some of the ways that he was 
either looked at by teammates or the way that he was looked at by competitors. Like even with the Isaiah stuff, right? I like Isaiah and the Pistons. They have some legitimate arguments, like in terms of the way that they perceive that rivalry, and it ends up being cut with Michael Jordan, you know, holding the screen, like this bull, and it just, yeah, it's it's very much for Michael uh, through Michael's eyes, which has a lot of value and has a lot of entertainment, but I don't think can be put in the same way as some of the other thirty for thirty documentaries, and I don't know, I I just think that maybe some of this was my own doing in terms of those levels of minor disappointments with this thing because I probably built it up a little bit too much in my mind of what it was going to be or made assumptions about this thing that I shouldn't have based on limited information. Yeah, that's fair. So what about Jordan? Let's let's wrap with this. How has your perception of Michael Jordan changed, if at all, from watching this series? How has it changed? I mean... I don't know if it has. I think. He, Do you like him more or less? I, I'm somewhat indifferent. I guess okay. I'm a bit conflicted. Um, I respect him, which I think is probably more important. I the one quote that to me encapsulates the entire series and everything about him and his legacy is when he said, "I don't have a gambling problem. I have a competitiveness problem." And it's partially a cop-out, but it's also probably true. And I just think that he was uber competitive from the time his dad slighted him and his inability to pick out the right wrench and him wanting to literally win his dad's affection over his brothers, his brothers beating him up when they would play basketball. I think he's just driven by competition so much so that he can't, stop and really smell the roses um that he just wants to continue to drive and drive and drive and drive and the only time you really see him at peace smelling the roses is after they win the sixth championship oh my guy's playing the piano and there's a bunch of media in his hotel suite uh and he's got a huge cigar like at that point it seemed like he had you know come to some sort of peace with his quest but um I think he's driven by competition and I see slices of other players, most notably Kobe, uh, that came after him in him and his makeup and his, his DNA. Like if you really look closely, it's like, okay, I can see a little Tiger Woods in him. I can see a little Kobe in him. And so I think that's, uh, th- th- I suppose that's, that's what I, I learned that, that I, didn't maybe know because I hadn't really thought about it that much, but it didn't surprise me when it was revealed. I this has absolutely changed my perspective of Jordan. I just look at it and think what the what this series did really effectively was for me anyways, and I think for a lot of people, it had an effect of deifying him as a basketball player, but also humanizing him as Michael Jordan. Where we have these moments where you mentioned it, he cries, he breaks down talking about his teammates and trying to explain what it is that he wanted from them and trying to convey what it was that, that he believed as a competitor, that he didn't have to apologize for caring more than other people, that we get these moments where he's there with his security guards. You, one of your favorite moments of the series, right? Just, just gambling with one of the guys. And then, 
the I think it's George Lett. I might be screwing up his name, but how he genuinely cares about this guy enough to to call his wife and say that you need to get him to the hospital and bringing him a game ball and seeing those those moments, seeing him having to evade crowds that every single day for Michael Jordan was a battle just to get in and out of his hotel room that there was no, you know, they mentioned even in, I think it's episode nine or 10 where someone says, Oh, did you have a couple of beers down in the hotel lobby? And he's like, no, up in my room with the piano. It's like, yeah, that's the only place he could be was in his hotel room that there's these things we empathize with Michael Jordan with the, the caring, the, the competitive level, the, the person, the death of his father and the way that he dealt with that. The the college student, all of these things where I feel like, man, Michael Jordan, the guy, what a complicated guy, what a weird life he has, while at the same time maintaining the deity that is a basketball player. The guy that you mentioned it has the most iconic shot in the history of the game, the game six against Utah in 98 that it closes on, that that could have been the final chapter of the greatest basketball career of all time, that you just couldn't beat him, that no matter what happened, what he was dealing with, whether it was the flu or a broken down Scottie Pippen, he was going to overcome it, that if the Pistons were going to beat him up or the Knicks were going to beat him up, it didn't matter. He would come back at you stronger and he would always end up on top eventually, even if he didn't out of the gate when it came to the Pistons. Just it, it's, it's done a really great job of conveying what Jordan not only thinks of himself, but also what the basketball community at large thought of him. When you get the quotes from Reggie saying, I never called him Michael Jordan again, just the way that his peers were enamored with him. So I just, I find myself liking Michael Jordan more out of this. I grew up hating Michael Jordan. I think I've said it already on the podcast that I just, I could not stand him as a kid. I wanted him to lose every single game I think I ever watched him play. I had zero appreciation for him, but I was a baby. Like I was a, you know, when he wins in 98, I'm nine years old. So it, it's really hard for me to look back on these things with, with real serious memories of, oh, well, I was overly critical. It's like, no, I was a kid, but a lot of it really did make me wish that I had been older to appreciate him in the moment and to have really thought about him with more clarity rather than just reading a couple of books where you kind of think you're in it at the time when you're reading them. That watching these things happen was, yeah, I just, I found myself a Michael Jordan fan. I really had a moment where I was like, man, I want to buy some Jordans, man. I want to buy a Jordan Jersey. And like I thought about childhood me and was like, man, that's so blasphemous. Don't do those things. Don't buy a Jordan Jersey. You have your Kemp and Peyton posters on the wall. Like that's what you keep. That's who you are. That's your identity. I just, I think this was in terms of a, a coup for an image and a legacy. One of the greatest accomplishments ever in that regard. Like, I don't think we'll ever have something like you need a pandemic where people are locked inside and there's no sports to get the type of attention it gets, first of all, but to combine that with the personality, the larger in life basketball player, all the confluences that came together in terms of how we're going to remember Michael Jordan, you'll never think about Michael Jordan again if you're a basketball fan without thinking about things from this series. And to me, that's just, it's massive. It's its hard to even wrap your head around. Yeah, Diana Taurasi was talking about the series and she said, well, she was from LA, so she was a Lakers fan. But everyone was a Jordan's fan. Like he was just a default that you cheered for. And I don't know if we're gonna necessarily have that again because we're just so divisive in everything, including sports. But I, I just don't know if we're gonna have anyone in anything that's that dominant. Like he's it, got the highest scoring average in NBA history, ten scoring titles. And then I love the fact that they showed the strip of Malone because we forget he had nine uh, first team defensive awards. It's the most uh, in the history of the game. And he won a defensive player of the year when he was just 24. 
AP Player of the Year, NCAA Champion, Rookie of the Year, League MVP, Finals MVP, Olympic Gold Medalist, again, Scoring Champion. I, no one has, gonna, has been able to run the gamut in a sport and dominate the way he does. Six titles, six Finals MVPs, five overall MVPs, 10 scoring titles. LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry combined have eight titles, five Finals MVPs, seven MVPs, six scoring titles. The three, in my estimation, greatest players right now combined barely, barely beat out MJ alone. It's like a photo finish in terms of their all-time records. He's just a noun and a verb. Like he signifies greatness, right? If you want to describe a person, place, or thing that is legendary, it's, uh, it's Jordan. Since you've been an adult, and let's say, let's put you at 16 or 17 years old, who is the athlete that reminds you? Like when you watch this documentary, have you thought at all about who he reminds you of, if anyone? Because, yeah, like all these LeBron James comparisons get made, but he doesn't remind me of LeBron James at all. Like, I can go first if you want some time to think about it. And a cornicle. Mine actually is a tennis player. Uh, interesting. Um, I could guess, but I'll I'll let you divulge it. So I'll give you two answers because Col- Kobe's like the easy one. Like you know, Kobe yeah. was doing a Jordan impersonation, tried to speak like him, tried to walk like him, held the shorts like him. You know, famously took twenty four, won above Jordan, changed his number mid career. Like just he wanted to live out Jordan to to the point where. You know, part of the reason he felt so hurt by Phil Jackson, you know, always siding with Shaq is because he wanted to be Phil Jackson's favorite son the same way Michael Jordan was. The, so Kobe's the easy answer, and I, I'm not going to say Kobe. I, I think in a way, the, the transformational nature of someone in a single sport, when Jordan came in, the NBA was in 64 countries. By the, by the time the Bulls win their sixth, they were in 215. And Adam Silver talks about the fact he was running NBA Entertainment that other countries wanted to, to buy you know NBA packages. And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll give you 40 games. Because there's no question at that point that people would want more. And the countries would be like, okay, we want 40 Bulls games. We just want Bulls games. And if it was up to us, it would be the Bulls playing the Bulls. Like We do not care who, it, who else it is. Th- that transformational nature... I think the closest thing is Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods made golf shoes cool. He made a, a TW golf hat cool. He w- made wearing a golf red shirt on Sunday cool. He brought people into the sport that didn't care about golf before. So I think that's the closest to Jordan, and obviously just their their dominance. Um, and and they they both kind of had some vices in their in their personal lives. The, the but when I actually watched this, and it, maybe it's because I watched them up close for a year and because I have Kendrick Perkins voice in my head at all times in life when I actually watch this series I see a lot of Kawhi Leonard like his on-court mannerisms Kendrick was the first person who said Kawhi Jordan this boy looks like Jordan when he's playing I don't care about LeBron I don't care about Kobe Kawhi is the next closest thing we have to Jordan and that sounds crazy because their demeanors are opposite but you look at the mannerisms and when they play and yet there are a lot of similarities and so both from a larger sporting landscape standpoint, I think the comp for me is Tiger, but actually on the court and the types of movements that they made, the types of plays that they made, how dominant they were on both ends. 
I saw a lot of Kawhi. So a Kawhi Tiger Kobe mix actually is a lot of ingredients to Michael Jordan. Like I think if you could combine those three, that all of those things have merit. My thing with Kobe in the comparisons has always been I watched Kobe. Kobe was great. Kobe was a great player. He was a killer. But I never felt helpless against Kobe Bryant the way that you felt helpless against Michael Jordan. That that Michael Jordan just dominated in a different way. And that Kobe has those rings, but he has three of those rings with Shaquille O'Neal. And Shaquille O'Neal was the better player on all three of those championship teams. And that just that can't be removed from the equation here. That Michael Jordan was the best player on all of his teams. He was never the Pippin. And that Kobe Bryant was the Pippin for three championships. Like, that's just the way it is. Those are just the facts. And that Kobe has had an incredible career, and he was an incredible player, and in terms of his approach to the game, the by any means necessary, that those two things, he had a real kinship with Michael Jordan. But in terms of being this dominant figure that that terrified me in a way to my to my bones, or that you really felt there was no way that Kobe was ever going to miss, or that Kobe was... It, it just it, it wasn't the same. They're just not the same on that level. That really, the Tiger Woods one... It's very close. But to me, I always, I, th- I thought about Serena at times. I really did. I just thought about someone who was just so far ahead of all of their peers that there was just this clear line of delineation between you and everybody else. And I thought about Serena, how popular she is and how unanimously loved she is, despite being a pretty petty competitor that, you know, there's highlights of Serena yelling at officials, you know, and storming off the court and not being a great sport. And that all of these things are kind of forgiven because she's so dominant and because she's so loved and that she's so larger than life. And I, I found myself thinking like, if there's one athlete that I think is the closest to Michael, I think it's Serena. Like the parallels between the two of them, there's, there's quite a few. Like I just, they, I think they have a similar demeanor. I think they have a similar level of dominance that who's betting against Serena Williams, you know, in her prime against anybody. Nobody's doing that. That's crazy talk. Who's betting against Michael Jordan in his prime against anybody? Nobody. That's crazy talk. The pettiness, the the overall desire to win, the ability to market themselves and be these larger than life figures. I see a lot of Serena and Michael. Like when I when I look at my modern day athletes, that's who that's who to me has the the closest package when it comes to all of the above. Uh, Clearly, not the global reach, but in terms of North America and, and athletics and women's sports. Is, is there a bigger female athlete than Serena Williams? Like if you can get one female athlete to, to represent your company, is there anyone that you want in terms of brand power to, to push you like from, to push your, your brand? Like, I, I don't think so. I, I'm drawing a blank if there is somebody. I, what do you think of the Serena comparison? I, I like it. It's a good one. The only small, I guess, inconsistency was Serena and her sister Venus had the rep early in their careers certainly that they were somewhat sheepish to play against each other they didn't want to compete against each other that one would throw a match yeah. and that it would be decided who would not win. the and case I don't, with Michael's I don't brother that's actually true but i do not think at all that, that would never even be a thought if it was michael jordan uh he would find some reason to want to destroy his his sibling um and he would whether it was real um or um or fabricated um, but yeah, no, it's a good parallel. Obviously, strong relationships with with fathers in in both instances. So that that would be a good comp. Yeah, I just I think I, I I thought of Serena multiple times when I was watching this. It actually made me regret not being more of a tennis fan, so that I didn't didn't appreciate or that I could have appreciated Serena more. Uh, this series was fun. 
I'm very much going to miss it. Uh, I think you will as well. Is there anything that you, you want to say before we go out on this, before we close the book? I'm sure that something else will end up coming up over the next week that we'll, we'll end up having to discuss or debate. But is there any closing thought that you'd like to make uh, or would you just like to say goodbye to the associates? No, this is fun. Thank you for all the feedback, associates, and hope you enjoyed it. Um, I can't wait for uh, the next cultural sports movie to uh, get us all upset and bothered on on Twitter. Um, ESPN's next 30 for 30 is about Lance Armstrong. I doubt we're going to be breaking it down on On his podcast, the two-part series, but... Desperate times call for desperate measures. So, Listen, anytime know. you want to come on Good Show to talk about the Lance Armstrong documentary, you have a, the, a free pass. So you ever need to just vent about anything that comes out of this thing, you let me know. Same goes for the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa thing that's coming up. I can tell you what I don't think it'll be. I don't think it'll be the the Dwayne Wade uh, documentary. that there's, I've, I've had enough Dwayne Wade for the last two years. I don't think I need more Dwayne Wade right now. <laughs> that's not what the pandemic is called for. Like, can Dwayne Wade take a back seat eventually, ever? Like, is that ever going to happen? Yeah, we know. We already know a lot about Dwayne Wade. So it's like, guys, I have a documentary about me. I was like, no one asked for one. No one asked for one, Dwayne. <laughs> it's, it's all good. We're good over here. Oh, yeah. good old D-Wade. Uh, thank you to the associates. You can subscribe. You can review. You can follow on Spotify. We are now on. Uh, shout out to our producer, Michael, who always puts together a terrific lineup and sets us up for these things. Uh, this was fun. I actually look forward to rewatching it. Um, if you enjoyed it, leave us a review uh, and we'll catch you next week. This is Free Association on the Sportsnet Podcast Network.